Every book tells two stories. The first is the tale inside the page. The second is a story about its reader. Each book that we choose to keep on our shelves tells a chapter in the story of our lives. So join me, Alex Cool, as I speak to authors, illustrators, publishers and booksellers about their shelf life. My guest this week is Sarah Turner, the former uh, trading controller for the e-commerce side of WH Smith, where she was responsible for 10 years or so for the website, so the entertainment, the magazine, stationery, and of course, the books side of of that. So um, she did that for 10 years, but has recently left the world of books to start- A whole week ago. A whole week ago. To start a new role at uh, sallybeauty.co.uk. Yeah. At the moment, you haven't started. No, I'm I'm currently unemployed. But you will have started by the time this goes out. Yes. So hopefully. I hope so. Oh yeah. I hope so. <laughs> so hopefully, you're having a wonderful time. I hope so. You've ended this part of your bookie career on a bit of a high because you've recently been a judge for the Costa Novel Award. I have. What was it like? Um, firstly, fun. It was fantastic to be asked. Um, didn't see it coming at all. I'd known a few other people that had done it over their careers. So when I had a, I was contacted about the early part of 2019 to ask if that was something I'd be interested in, I, I jumped at the chance. That wow, so it's like a year-long process. Yeah, so I started reading the books for it probably around May, June time last year, so that was six months ago, but I was first approached, it was in the spring, it must have been March, April kind of time that I was first approached. Wow. And only now, next week, we will find out the overall Costa winner for 2019. Um, at the moment, we only know the winners of the individual categories, so I'm going to the, the final award ceremony next week, which would be great to find and out who the overall winner is. Do Because do, obviously you knew the winner of your category before it was announced, yes, because you were the judge, yes. But do you have any clue as to who the winner is, or will you find out? Absolutely no clue. I'll find out on the night. Wow, that's exciting. So I know one of the one of the judges that was part of the judging panel for my category has gone on to be one of the judges overall. That would be John. That would be John Boyne, and he's given no clues at all as to the books that he's read as part of that process, any personal favourites. But I think I'll. Our winner of our category has a has a really strong chance. And the winner of your category was was Middle England by Jonathan Coe, which is it's been called like the Brexit novel, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, if if ever there was a novel to sum up the period of history we've just lived through, then it absolutely is that. <laughs> so obviously, then you read a lot of books for the Costa, mm-hmm. but you're a big reader, anyway. Yes. How yeah. many books roughly do you think do you think you read a year? I would have said somewhere between eighty and a hundred. Which I don't think sounds that many when I say it like that. But I then also chuck into that that I have a full-time job and a family. And so actually, I, I think it's it's not bad going. It's pretty good. I mean, a lot of people sort of balk at the idea of even doing one a week. So to do 80 to 100 is two a week. Yeah, and my my plan, I, I, I have used um, apps in the past to set myself a challenge at the beginning of the year. And I do go for the goal. 52 a year because that is the the one a week but the bit that probably throws it out is going on holiday yeah so i always <laughs> over index during those weeks and definitely under index at other times of the year 
How long do you, do you read quickly? Does it take you a long time to read a book? I think I read quickly once I'm reading, but I don't have that much time to read, so I'll often read intensely for an hour or so. Um, and my time for reading is in bed just before I go to bed, um, or just before I go to sleep, so that last hour or so. So I'd say in normal times, I would it would take me three or four days to finish. I've asked you to pick seven books. The idea of this is to explore the life of somebody via the books on their bookshelf. So first of all, how did you go about choosing your seven titles? With great difficulty. <laughs> um, I, I think it's important to say they're not necessarily... If I was to pick out my top seven books of all time, these aren't necessarily those books, yeah. but they probably give an illustration into my life and the things that influence my life. And some I think people will be very, very familiar with. My first choice is the first instalment of the St. Clair series by Ian Blyton. So when I, when I think back to starting to read, this is definitely a book and this is an author that kind of define, defined my childhood reading. I think it's probably still true of a lot of kids today. So I had, I had the St. Twins and the Mallory Towers series. And if you were a girl, and I, I would say it probably more so for, for girls of that young age, you were either a St. A St. Clair's or a Mallory Towers girl. You, you definitely had one or the other. Mallory Towers had one key girl at the heart of it, Daryl. The St. Clair's had the Sullivan twins, the O'Sullivan twins, Pat and Isabel O'Sullivan. Um, so two girls at the heart of it, but both set in a really traditional Enid Blyton style boarding school in the... 1940s, I think. Uh, the books that came out in 41, so. Okay, oh, even prior to that. Um, but, do you know, I haven't, I haven't looked at the St. Clair's books for, for years and years and years. It's not one that I've gone back and read since. But in terms of why did I pick this book, it's probably the, one of the biggest examples of a book and the series of books that I read hundreds of times previously. I, I dread to think as a child how many times I read this book. And when I go through the other books in my selection, I don't think I've read any of them more than once. And I think now as I get into reading habits, I don't read a book more than once. It's really, really rare. If I go back to the Costa reading example, it was probably the first time in a really long time I read a book more than once as part of that judging process. And we don't do it as adults. But my I've got an 11-year-old daughter and... So I've, I've stolen this copy from her bookshelf. And although she doesn't really read them now, she's, she's probably a little bit too old for them now, um, the amount of times I must have said to her, are you reading that again? You've read this before, why don't you read a new book? Um, and it must have been exactly the same things that my mum said to me. Um, so I think for me, it, it defined, uh, Enid Blyton generally was really important to me as a child reading growing up. Wasn't a famous five or secret seven lover particularly, but my son read those. My daughter's gone on to love St. Clair's and Mallory Towers. The Mystery of series, the Mystery of the Burning Cottage type stuff, loved all of those. So I read a lot of Enid Blyton. So it was. But there was, was a lot of Enid Blyton to read as well. Yeah, and I don't think I read them all. <laughs> no, I don't think any work. <laughs> I, I, was, I was doing some research and uh, Google was not entirely helpful. Uh, Do you think Google's lost track of how many books she's read? Certainly it has, because when you type into Google how many books has Enid Blyton written, uh, the answer comes up with at least 16 at least 16? Yes. I think we've got at least 16 <laughs> in our house. I think the answer is actually closer to 800. Wow. 
life. Yeah, crazy. But the St. Clair series, since after she died, other people have come in and written additional books in that series. That's well, there was only six in the original series. Yeah, and there's been some extra ones that people have added in that aren't just written by Enid Blyton. But you went to boarding school, didn't you? I did. So, And I blame entirely... On this book. Well, this and Mallory Towers. So I went to boarding school when I was 12. My parents lived abroad. My dad was due to move jobs again during my GCSE years. So I hadn't known this necessarily till afterwards that my parents then made the decision that boarding school would be better and not disrupt my GCSE years. And when I questioned later, why, why did I go to boarding school? And my mum came out and said, but you loved the Mallory Towers books. <laughs> As though a boarding school in the 1940s would be representative of a boarding school that I went to in the 80s and 90s. Well, that was what I was going to ask. So are there, were there any similarities? No, none at no all. absolutely not. Absolutely not. In the same way, I don't think any child now who'd read Harry Potter and going, I'd quite like to go to Hogwarts, is any indication as to whether a child will thrive at boarding school. Well, yes, Hogwarts is quite different. Do you know, it's probably as made up as this. Oh, as okay. No, there were no similarities whatsoever. And, I mean, I laughed in disbelief at my mum going, but you loved Mallory Towers. Of course you would love boarding school. But that, that was enough of a justification. What is your second choice? This, although the book um, that I've actually got in front of me is called We Love You Snoopy um, by Charles M. Schultz, it's more representative of the whole Peanuts gang. And as I said, I, I grew up with parents that were living abroad and they had access to a lot of American shops at, during the stages of growing up. And we always had Snoopy things in the house. So I remember I had a Snoopy duvet cover. Um, but we also had loads of the books and they were they were always in and around the house and these little comic strips that you could just dip into. And over the years, as I read them, and it would be just a little comic strip at a time, and I think they were, they were featured in one of the newspapers when I was growing up as well, I don't know which one, um, that Snoopy was just ever-present. And whenever, my, um, whenever we'd go anywhere, because it wasn't everywhere as a character. My mum would always pick up bits of Snoopy merchandise as she went um, and this carried on to when I had children and they've they've just always accompanied us as part of life but it wasn't it wasn't a mainstream character that other people particularly had in and around their houses and when I was at university I met the man that was to become my husband and when we when I first went back to his house, there was a copy of this exact book um, that I'd had at my parents' house in his parents' house. And inside, and it's his copy I've got here, I've got his name on it, John oh. um, And there was suddenly the realisation of, oh my God, there's, there's somebody else that really likes Snoopy and really likes the cartoons and, and the characters. And I mean, we've got um, DVDs of the TV series that have been some done since, some of the animations. I've got mugs, I've got bits around the house, but there's individual characters within Schultz's cartoon strip that they're just brilliant. For, for years, I was convinced that John was going to talk me into having a, our daughter being called Lucy. He often described when I was getting particularly bossy or arsy about something, I, I was in Lucy mode. But I think there's, there's a bit of a Snoopy 
Well, I was going to say you are definitely. I would. I, I thought of Lucy when I thought of you. Yeah, um, I mean, there is the little red-haired girl um, as a character that Charlie Brown falls in love with. Love with from a distance. She's she's one of the more minor characters. But as a as a young child, it was all about Snoopy and Woodstock because they were funny and silly and ridiculous. But then, as you got older, you really more identify with some of the, the kids. And even now, if the house is messy and particularly our children's bedrooms that they're really messy then it'll be referred to god there's pig pen being in here and there's <laughs> always been some association with one of them so for him to have found somebody to have met somebody really early on in life that um that shared people's love he was that was it that was that was a done deal that's like something out of a book it is isn't it? it is there's a book in there somewhere there is definitely so yeah. but it ran for 50 years the comic strip yeah um have you yeah. do you think do you know have you read them all no, no. Because they're all out there in the individual yeah, collections. Yeah, I would have thought so. I don't know. I mean, over the years, there's been different um, characters that we've laughed a lot about. So so Snoopy is the flying ace in one of them, and my husband's a pilot. So there was he's he's got a toy, I think, somewhere with Snoopy <laughs> with the goggles on. And one of my best friends is a lawyer. And for years, I used to call her the legal beagle because he was the lawyer character. And now... I, I don't call her by her name, she's the Beagle, because, and it all came from the Legal Beagle. So he's influenced, Shorts has influenced. Your whole life. Yeah. Do you know how it ended? No. So it's a lovely story. He was getting on in age, um, and he had the discussion with his family uh, about um, whether or not some of them wanted to take it on. And his family decided, no, they didn't want anyone to take it on. So they, they agreed as a family before his death that nobody else would draw any more strips so he he brought it to an end and he did a final farewell strip which was the last one to go out in like the national papers but he had a contract with some of the regional ones where he needed four more sunday strips so the last the last strip that went out in one of these regionals was snoopy sitting down at a typewriter uh, uh, and uh, i think and you can see him writing the literary ace yes and you can see him writing and drawing the final strip that had gone out oh. four weeks previously so it's almost as if snoopy had done the whole yeah. thing but what was interesting was that went into the regional paper the day after that Schultz died so doing it so close to the end so close to the end that the last one went out the day after his death which you couldn't time that yeah i find that a nice story yeah so you mentioned lucy earlier Yes. Is she your favourite character? Fairies. So I think you you can't fail to love Charlie Brown. But but Lucy has a little bit of my heart because she's she's a bit of a bitch. But also you've got to love Snoopy and Woodstock. Just the like dynamic between the two of them, and occasionally the brother or the cousin Spike would come in, and there were so many elements of it to love. What's your third choice? Right, my third choice. My first proper non-fiction choice, and this is Nigella Lawson's How Sweet. This is the first cookery book, I guess, I bought, and I remember buying it in the late 90s. Now, Nigella at that point, it was her, her first published cookery book, I think, but it's it's not a cookery book, but I still refer to it to this day and I use her recipes from this book to this day and there's some of them that we just know off by heart and we, we don't even refer to it anymore but I'd followed her as a writer and I think at the time she was writing Vogue magazine a food column and through some newspapers so it was way before she was on telly it was way before the Nigella we know now it's more than a cookbook 
when I left university, started up in employment, moved into first flat. I didn't need a cookery book that gave me recipes for fancy dinners and um, here's something new to try with a whole host of ingredients. I needed to know how to make pancakes on pancake day, crumbles, how to, what to do for roast dinners. And in How to Eat, she covers all of that. She covers all the basics of how to make basic sauces, basic gravies, basic meals, but also whole sections, which I then came on to later, for young babies and children and really family food, but then also dinner parties of suggestions. If you were having six people round and it was in the winter, here's a really good set of suggestions for a starter main course and pudding. It's not recipes, there is not, I'm going to flick through it now just to back myself up, there's, there's no photos in it of any dish. So you don't see a finished photograph of any meal. Wow. Which is just unthinkable these days. And yeah. I've often thought over the years, I wonder if they think about republishing it with all the photos of all the recipes finally done, but it didn't matter one of somehow. the things that she sort of cites as the reason for writing the, the book is yeah. that she was at a, a a dinner party and the host was in floods of tears because her souffle hadn't risen or it was something as silly as that and so Nigella said you know it's fine do if you can't make it don't make it or if it fails it fails so I wonder if that's a conscious decision not to then put pictures in, because if there's something in there that looks amazing and yours doesn't quite yeah. match it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, and I've, I've come across um, friends that have also got this book and where we've had meals and they've maybe cooked something from it that I've also cooked and looked at it and gone, oh, it looks really different when they've done it because everybody's take on it is slightly different. And she, it's not prescriptive that you have to follow every single bit she, she might vary things a bit so some of the outcomes aren't aren't the picture perfect thing on the plate but that doesn't matter but it's really conversational and she writes as well so it it's just not it's not a recipe book as we would know in Nigella recipe book now and I, I know it has been republished several times recently and and the publisher's done a great job at sort of reissuing and, and getting people to love it but honestly I couldn't I couldn't do without couldn't do without this book. It is there's probably pages stuck together where flour and eggs have spilt all over it in time. But there isn't a book that goes from how to make. I'm just looking at the first chapter, which have basics. What are basic dishes? Everyone know has to roast chicken. What to do with slabs of meat? Um, but it's general information so basic that many books don't bother to mention it. I'm often telephoned by friends at whose houses I have eaten something more elaborate than I would ever cook to ask how long their leg of lamb needs to be in the oven for and what temperature. So she, she includes weights and measures and how long to cook roasts for and how to make the, the sauces that you go on the side for. Just your, maybe Delia probably did it in her after. My mum has a copy of an old Delia book, which also my gran had a copy of as well. Okay. And my mum, I know certainly my mum uses it once a year to remember how to make pancakes. Okay. Because there's a recipe yeah, in there. Yeah, and this has got this has got a recipe for pancakes and crumble and um, a basic, really basic Victoria sponge and a really basic um, bread recipe and um, how to make breadcrumbs and a basic salad dressing and all of the stuff that you just 
don't get in a single book anymore. But on the on the back of that, she's still got all the um, the stuff for recipes for weekend lunches, fast foods, meals for one and two, um, stuff that you can cook in advance, um, low fat foods, feeding babies and small children. And seriously, you don't need another cookbook. But actually, she's a gorgeous writer as well. She's a brilliant writer, so you can read it without reading the recipes or needing the recipes just yeah. because her conversational way of writing is, and is it really a engaging. mix so you said it's a mix of the conversational sort of writing and the recipe what sort of yeah. balance is it? is it it's not 50 50 or Do you know i couldn't even count the recipes in here i would have said 50 50 maybe yeah. even as the recipe is is coming into play she'll write in quite conversationally other ways that you could adapt it right. as well. So, so is it a bit like the TV programme? As she's doing it, you, you could do this, you could do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's probably Nigella not on TV, but in, in book form. Yeah. So she talks about leftovers and other things that she's um, done variations on, but absolutely chatting you through it. And this, is, uh, this was her first book, published in 1998. And do you know, I have all of... I think I have all of Nigella's that wow. she's published since. None of them have I used as much as this. Well, I was going to say, the one we know her for is obviously Domestic Goddess. Yes. But this one is better. Um, well, diff just different. If you were to only own one, it's this one. Okay. Um, Domestic Goddess is great for baking, and it's very cake-and-bake heavy, rather than recipes for everything. The, the key recipes that I will, I will be making till I die, her spaghetti carbonara, and her um, chicken pie, which I I wouldn't go to anybody else's recipe for. What's your fourth choice? My fourth choice is The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. This is Greek myth, fictionalised, told in a full story. I think it won the Orange Prize for fiction when it was released. And the reason I picked this is not only do I love the book, but it's probably a really good example of one that doesn't fit a book that I would normally pick off the shelf. So it is, in essence, historical fiction. If, if I was to classify types of books I enjoy, historical fiction, it that would rarely tick the box. It's based on myths. So in that respect, it would be fantasy. Also, I don't do made up. I don't do stuff that can't can't happen. So in the same way that in films, I can't, can't do Star Wars and Not Star Trek. And no, none of that. It can't happen. Don't want to know. So this defies all of my normal logic and I loved it. Um, and whenever I'm starting to say, oh no, I don't think I'd enjoy that because I take myself back to Song of Achilles. That's one that you would never have picked off the shelf because it ticks all the wrong boxes, yet it's and I think more people should do that. I've read another book recently that it was a crime thriller in the way that it was um, classified in the, the shop that I bought it from and anywhere that you look for it online. And, and I don't really do crime as a, as a genre. Had it been classified in a different part of the bookshop that I was looking at with a different cover, I would have absolutely bought it, but just because it had been classified a certain way or I thought it was going to be a certain thing, I didn't buy it. So I guess there is that don't judge a book by its, its cover type it? sayings. It's really true, but it's not just uh, 
um, judging a book by its cover, it's judging it from the area of the bookshop it's kept in or the categorisation that the online store puts it in. Um, and I think we're also keen to put them into different bundles that... There's nothing wrong with bundle. There's nothing wrong with bundles. <laughs> um, or we want, to, we want to allocate everything a type um, that actually just reading a book for what it is and who's recommended it and in, in some cases I guess the prizes it's won and hearing recommendations from other people they have started to become more important to me than where I might find it in a shop and what publisher has chosen to categorise it as or what has chosen the cover design to be. I think working in book selling I should know. I should have known that more than anybody else. So I, although I'd, I've been at Smiths and particularly looking after books for the last ten years or so, and and a key part of that job has been recommending the books that you want people to buy. And some of it isn't the books that I want them to buy because they're my personal taste. Because a, a bookseller has to do more than just yeah. their own personal taste. But my first ever Saturday job. When I when I was fifteen, was in a local independent bookshop in the town that my um, parents lived in, and I did that for um, certainly two and a half years, and then I would come back and do it in holiday time. So I was always very much around books from that early age. And when I was at university, I was still reading because I I did a degree that was very much reading based, but from a non-fiction point. So I I didn't read maybe as much fiction during that time. Um, but when it came to applying for jobs out of university, I applied for WH Smith's graduate trainee scheme. And at that point, WH Smith owned Waterstones. <laughs> and my, my aim at that point was to ideally get into WH Smith, but to go and do the Waterstones bit because I wanted to be in books. And I got through to the, all the final stages and I didn't get on. And I was utterly gutted. Um, that this sort of dream, ideal dream of going into book selling, I, it, it, it didn't happen. So you were in, you were in Smiths, but you didn't. No, you... so I'd, um, I applied to join their graduate training scheme. I got through first and second interviews. Was on the final selection sort of process, um, and didn't make it in. I wasn't offered a, a, oh. a role. So how did you get into Smiths in the end? I, I then abandoned, I had nothing to do with Smiths or Waterstones for <laughs> quite a few years because I was angry um, and retail took me off in a different direction and I, um, I joined a department store group and then I went on to, to buy for um, home base and then I was just coming back from maternity with my eldest um, who's just turned 15 a home base were relocating so I was made redundant and I I looked around for other roles and Smith's came up and I'd, my, my grudge had eased a little bit by then and they they opened their arms and took me in so that was 15 years ago and I worked in stationery for the first five years or so. Um, and they didn't own Waterstones then? They didn't own Waterstones at that point, no. And then after my daughter was born I moved to the online team and not long after that, after I joined the online team, WH Smith joined up with Richard and Judy um, to resurrect their book club and I got involved really early on and that absolutely got me back into reading again in in a much bigger way and probably reading books through that that I hadn't thought about reading before and genres I hadn't thought about reading before. Um, so 
so Smiths, I have a huge amount to be thankful for for really getting back into reading again. And I think Rich and Judy and those type of book clubs do a great job at recommending. And even now, as somebody that's been really closely involved with the book trade for the past, um, particularly the last 10 or so years, I still struggle with, what do I read next? And uh, book Twitter, which you'll be really familiar with, obviously. And through book Twitter, I have found people that have really similar reading tastes as me, that I look actively to what they're reading um, for what I think I might like next. And I will pick up conversations with them as to, do you think I'll like this? And it, it works two ways as well. So there's there's some really key people on there. Burt's is one. Although um, ours is, our taste is a bit... It, it, there is some crossover, but it's yeah, not... Not 100% crossover, but I take a little bit of sprinkling of what you do. And then there's probably five or six others. Sarah Manning, who is the books editor for Red Magazine. Francesca Brown, who is the books editor for Stylist. And also co-judge. And also co-judge for Costa, but we hadn't met before doing Costa. But I always followed her recommendations on Stylist. Sarah Shaffey, who previously did the book recommendations for Stylist and now does a lot of freelance work, but is still very heavily involved in in the book trade. Look out for what she reads. And Nina Pottle, who is Prima. I would say that's probably where our crossover is, in that the books that Nina reads are the same books that you and I will read. Yeah. Um, Madeline Miller has also done... So back to this book. Back to this book, which I was discussing a minute ago. Um, Madeline Miller also wrote Circe, um, and I was debating between the two of them, which of hers... Well, so that was interesting, because that was going to be my next question, because it took seven years, this gap between Mm. the two books. So... She hasn't got a huge canon of work. No. Having loved Song of Achilles, when Circe came out, did it live up to expectation? And more. Really? Yeah. But Madeline Miller and the Song of Achilles, it is one actually that I and another mutual friend of ours have have both read and both said to you you have to read so out of out of all my seven picks today that's the one that I'd say you have to read but I'm not lending you my copy because <laughs> it would never come back again okay what's your next choice all right my next choice is it is called one by Sarah Crossan it probably would be classified as um young adult my, my daughter's read it so she's 11 so yeah very young adult it's not it's not at the older end of young adult um, children's books. I think it won the Carnegie Medal. And Sarah Crossan is an Irish author. I've read quite a few of hers now. So Toffee was released in 2019 and Moonrise, I think, was 2018. And she deals with really quite hard-hitting subjects, but in she writes in prose form. So it is the sparsest writing... I have ever come across with the greatest depth to it. I am staggered how she can get across her story in so few words. She is utterly extraordinary. And actually, I say I don't read books more than once. I've read this more than once. Because you can read this in one sitting. Because I think there is a chapter, and I'm trying to find it now, that... The, the chapter, if you like, has one word to it. it, it it's uh, okay. nuts. I mean, there, there are some... The word is nuts or no. the concept is nuts? <laughs> no, the concept is nuts. And they're not chapters as such, but it is so easy to read. Yeah. But 
God, the, the emotion that she manages to pack into it is just incredible. And that was, it's probably the best example of how the writing and the style of writing can utterly blow you away. Do you want to read a, a section of it now just to give an idea to people? Um, the premise of this book is that Grace and Tippy are twins and they're conjoined twins. Um, so we've, I think we've all been familiar of stories that have appeared in the press over the years that have maybe been captured in documentaries about conjoined twins and how they managed to live. And I think it's a world that even twins would really struggle to imagine life joined to somebody else, physically joined to yeah. somebody else. Um, and she just captures it so brilliantly. I'll, I'll read the opening, I say chapter, but it's, it's first few words. It's entitled Sisters. Here we are, and we are living. Isn't that amazing, how we manage to be at all? Summer's breath begins to cool, the ink of night comes earlier and earlier, and out of the blue, Mum announces that Tippy and I will no longer be taught at home. In September, you'll join a class of juniors and go to school like everyone else, she says. I don't make any ripples. I listen and nod and pull at a loose thread in my shirt until a button falls away. But Tippy doesn't stay silent. She detonates. Are you kidding me? Have you lost your minds? She shouts, then argues with Mum and Dad for hours. I listen and nod and bite at the skin around my fingernails until they start to bleed. And although I'm reading it as though it's all written as one, within that there's, there's really big gaps in paragraphs in text, and yeah. just the way the text is written is... Um, really simple but just just incredible it won't be a surprise to you at all i this this book made me cry so i remember giving it to my daughter go just just beware this made me cry and she's hard as nails and it didn't make her cry <laughs> and i wonder if some of it is around because i've seen stories of this captured in real life over the years and you've seen some of the stories of conjoined twins that don't always end in Happiness. happiness that but this feels so real so so real but the two other books of hers that i read again they deal with really hard hitting subjects so moonrise deals with uh, a prisoner on death row in america wow. and his um younger brother is, is it written in the same style yeah and toffee is written about a, an old woman with dementia and a young girl that has run away from home from a really toxic relationship with her father um, at home and, and quite a violent relationship with her father at home and how the her and this, this old lady form a friendship and a relationship. And again, written in really sparse prose. Um, so it's they're quite heavy subjects, but written just with this such a light touch. But they're not too heavy for an 11-year-old. No. No, I think it's it's another one, and um, whoever thought I would compare Sarah Crossan to Charles Schultz, it can be age appropriate for any age group, but you get different things out of right. it depending on how old you are as a reader, I think. I think you see different things as an adult than you would as a child, and so no, nothing, none of it is, is graphic. I think it's what your imagination and your own life experiences can... It's the context in which you're reading. Yeah, you if you if you have that life experience and you can visualise 
that reality, it takes you far deeper in. My daughter at 11 can't necessarily. This is my husband. Is that actually your husband? It probably isn't <laughs> actually him. It was a helicopter. It was a Chinook helicopter. Well, fortunately, we were at the end of that, so it might not be in. But if you did hear a helicopter in the background... That's yeah. why. That was why. It was Sarah's husband coming yes. in for lunch. Yeah. <laughs> What's your next choice? My next choice is um, sort of uh, maybe an unusual one. And one that I thought was going to um, do more in the market than it ended up doing. So it's a book called Anatomy of a Soldier by Harry Parker. And it is fiction. Um, and this was his debut novel. Um, he's a writer and an artist. Um, so he was himself um, a British army officer and he served in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, part of his, um, during part of his time in, I think it was Afghanistan, he was involved in an explosion that, um, where he lost both of his legs. So he himself walks on prosthetic legs okay. now. Um, the the book tells the story of Captain Tom Barnes, um, and he's an army officer in a war zone. And although it's not named, it would be it's sort of hinted at that it would be um, the Middle East. And he also is injured in a really life changing way through an exploding IED. And so there's an element as you're reading it that you think is this fiction or is it non-fiction because it kind of blurs the lines but he very much says that it is fiction but obviously he must draw his own experiences into account and this book there's quite a lot of reasons that I picked this and we, we talked earlier about book twitter this was one of the books where I started talking about it online having read it and where you're talking about you post something on Twitter about a book you're reading and other people come in and particularly when you're using the hashtags that the publishers like you to use and that I entered into conversation with other people on Twitter for the first time about a book I was reading and really discovered that book community online. So this was one of those books that absolutely cemented me really using that as a platform to engage with other book readers and people who like the same stuff as me and a way of talking about a book I suppose like a book club online because you it's such a reading can be such a solitary existence and it's really rare that you're reading the same book at the same time as your immediate friends or family who don't necessarily have the same books in common with you and I'm not a member of a book club which always seems to be more of an excuse for a wine club <laughs> from <laughs> from what I can tell that it, it was the first time that I felt I really had a family out there that I could yeah. chat to about it online you could go to a book club and people would have negative views about a book that you made me loved I'm, I don't want to hear those I take it really personally yeah I don't, I don't want to know that you didn't love a book that I really loved but book twitter and maybe I'm just really lucky with the people I've found there so far that if people don't like a book, they don't tend to engage in the conversation and go, oh no, I really hated this. And I think maybe that's the opposite to authors and some of the authors I follow on there, I definitely get the impression that they're tagged in people's criticisms of their books, which seems yeah. really harsh. Whereas where I'm talking about a book, generally it's people going, oh, I love that too. And didn't you like X, Y, and Z? Which is, you're, yes, you, you've got that 
community of people that all agree with you which let's face it twitter isn't often no and i think that's why it's the nice part of the internet is because people are talking about the things that they actually have in common rather than the things that divide them yeah and the other reason probably i should i should say that i've picked this book is that my husband as part of his job has spent time in iraq and afghanistan and not as part of the british army and hasn't been injured and we haven't had to deal with anything like the subjects that have been covered in this book but it's not it's not an area of his life that i have a huge amount of understanding about some of the times and it's it's not great <laughs> dinner times of conversation no. so this d- fiction of this sort has actually given me an insight into his world without him needing to talk about it because we have completely different jobs I, re- I remember back in the day when I was buying Christmas decorations for home base <laughs> and he would come home covered in camouflage paint and I would come home covered in glitter and honestly we had it was we were just poles apart in terms of what what have we vaguely got in common about how was your day at work how well how was yours well i covered myself in camouflage paint to practice hiding from the enemy or i decided whether i preferred the silver bauble or the green one so you ended up talking about snoopy instead (laughs) so yeah you we just didn't talk about our everyday lives and i think some of the the stuff that he sees in his job can be quite uncomfortable and unpleasant that he doesn't want to bring that home so this gives me an insight into his world in a in a different way told through through art form I guess what we haven't touched on is it's told in quite a unique way this this book yes so it's told through objects I, I would do it a disservice by talking about it so but the chapters are based upon certain objects so one of them is uh, chapter six i'm an olive green 30 litre day sack so it's told from the perspective of the day sack that this army officer used but in doing so it's telling his story and one of them is told later on when he's in hospital having been so badly injured one of them is told from some of the surgical instruments in the hospital that they're using as part of the operation to remove his legs i think one of them was a battery pack which was involved in the ied that caused the explosion so it's it's a really unusual way of telling a story and just really powerful and i i thought it was going to be everywhere when it first came out um, and it should sell more do the objects have they don't have voices a friend of mine who read it as well, I remember her saying to me, it is a perfect example, or the most perfect example she'd come across of showing, not telling. Some chapters, I think, probably work better than others. Do you know one thing I'm finding that I may have in common here? Um, there's three books here that have made me cry. Um, and that would, be, that would be one of them. What's yeah. your next choice? Is this the last choice? How many have we done? I think it might be the last choice. Right, my last choice, and when I sent Alex the list of my choices, almost his first comment with this one was, bloody knew you'd choose this one. (laughs) And I think it's because I went on and on and on and on about it for months. To the point that I very rarely read the books that you go on and on about. Did you read this one? I did. Did you? Yeah, at the time. Ah. Anyway, carry on. I didn't know that. Right, so this book is called The Fact of a Body. And it's by Alexandria Mazzano Lesnovich. And this is a non-fiction book. Apart from the fact that 
I absolutely loved this book. And where we talked at the beginning about the books as children that you read and read and read again, this is one that when I ever get some space in my reading pile, I will absolutely read again. Um, but this book got me back into non-fiction reading. Um, so for a long time, I think I'd associated non-fiction and biographies with the celebrities. The celebrity, but um, and particularly maybe working for W. H. Smith and seeing the celebrity biographies rolled out at Christmas. Um, that you were reading stories that were probably ghost-written that just scratched at the surface of all the titillating headlines that we'd read about them over the years. Um, to the point that I just couldn't read anymore. But equally, I couldn't previously have seen why would I read a biography or memoir about somebody that I don't know who they are or what they've done. What If I haven't heard of them, then what's going to be interesting about their memoir? Um, and on the face of it, this isn't a memoir. So the author, she was a law student and she was working on a death row hearing for a convicted murderer um, and a child killer in, in the States called Ricky Langley. She starts to unravel where, at what point you can almost assign blame and assign um, some culpability to a crime and whose fault something actually is. So you discover through Ricky Langley's life that he's got a really tangled childhood story and a really troubled childhood and a whole load of factors that actually have probably led to this point and therefore who is to blame? Is, is he actually to blame or are there other people that should really take some responsibility because of what has happened subsequently? But as she's deeper as she's digging deeper into his case she also realizes that there's something familiar unsettlingly so about his story and it makes her delve into her own childhood and uncovers the issues that she suffered as with a, a childhood or a relative through childhood that has had some impact into her life and I I won't go into the detail of it because otherwise it does go into a bit spoiler but she interweaves her own childhood past disturbing past with that of this child killer that she's investigating as part of the um, the death row case and so I'd never heard of her before I'd never heard of the crime of this um, Ricky Langley before and I think some of the some of the best non-fiction reads like fiction and I think sometimes these days some of the best fiction reads like non-fiction this is one of those prime examples of you don't really know if you're in non-fiction or fiction but it doesn't matter because she just writes brilliantly and now I seek out narrative non-fiction by people who I've not heard of that everybody actually written well has a fascinating story to tell and whether that be a the story of your entire life might be fascinating or it might be the story of an hour on a Saturday afternoon when something extraordinary happened but it's become just a small part of your world that you don't see it as being extraordinary and actually yes. she didn't set out to re-explore her own childhood no. did she? No, and I don't think she set out necessarily to write a book about her, the stuff that she was doing as a law student. It came organically as yeah. she 
I, she was piecing the bits together and actually as she was writing stuff down it was becoming a story but yet as a result of sex there's there's a lot more narrative non-fiction of people I've never heard about that that's where memoir and that narrative non-fiction should be focused I would love to see I completely agree let's get rid of the celebrity biographies I know they're dying away anybody because who's left that hasn't written written one now but people's everyday lives are actually a lot more more interesting interesting yeah so I'm going to now ask you to do the impossible yeah and pick just one but if 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 you were to say to somebody who's looking at your shelf yeah and they said I'm gonna I'm gonna take one of these books which one would you say you must read because it will see you through from your childhood to your 80s plus Charles Schultz Snoopy Snoopy Peanuts just ageless whereas I think some of the others may be a time and age and all human life is there in Peanuts everything he covers everything my guest this week was Sarah Turner and all of the titles we discussed are available to order on burtsbooks.co.uk apart from We Love You Snoopy which is no longer available instead you'll find the first volume of collected Peanuts cartoons my guest next week will be Julie Cohen the best-selling author of books such as Together and The Two Lives of Louis and Louise the book that Burt's Books customers voted their favourite book of 2019 I hope you'll join me then